Welcome to Sullivan Street, where we're going to talk about fan favorite album, maybe one of the most unique albums of all time, and the first official live recording by the Counting Crows across the wire. But first, I will say hello to my co-host, Chris Miggs. Chris, how are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this one. I have a theory about this record, which is that this is the sort of the demarcator between liking Counting Crows and loving Counting Crows. If you've got a friend and they say, I like Counting Crows, and you're like, hmm, maybe I can get them deeper into this. I really feel like you can put this, and in particular one song, which I'll talk about later, but you put this record on and you figure out, okay, do they love Counting Crows or are they going to be, you know, one of those people that you're like, oh, yeah, you went to see them in concert again. You're like, yeah, yeah, eh, it's fine. Anyway, I that, think this is, the, this is the dividing line. No, that sounds about right to me. I had I have had a number of listeners to the podcast write and said they're looking forward to this episode or they have opinions. And some, I'm not joking, say that it is their favorite Counting Crows album, uh, bar none. So we'll talk about that. And uh, also, hello to regular contributor, Counting Crows historian, Jeff Harkness. Jeff, welcome back to the program. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Always, <laughs> always a pleasure to be back. Thank you. And we'll and we'll get his take and 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 uh yeah lessons and lessons learned and history lessons with across the wire and we have two other guests to the program first entertainment journalist and podcast host ryan mccaffrey ryan welcome to the program thank you so much for having me i just got done i'm gonna plug jeff's book right here rain king the life and music of adam Duritz and county crows just finished it this week i bought it when i first heard Jeff's first appearance on the podcast to talk about the book and made it made my way through this week and great read. And as somebody that's been a super fan of the band for, well, since the 95, like mid nineties, there was plenty in there that was new to me that that's that I had did not know. So everybody listening to this should pick it up. It's a, it's a great read. Well, thank you. I'm sure Jeff appreciates that. <laughs> I'll send the I'll send the check out uh, immediately. <laughs> right, it's, it's on the way. <laughs> Ryan, no, thank you. We'll we'll hear more about this during the show. But one thing we always ask first time visitors to the show: uh, When did you become a Counting Crows fan, and what keeps you coming back to the Crows? So I uh, my my quick Counting Crows origin story is that I never really got way into music until into my teens. And Counting Crows was just the first band to really speak to me. I don't know if I had heard Mr. Jones on the radio at the time in the car. And I know, and then I do remember my dad had August and everything after, and I basically stole it from him and just started completely going down the Counting Crows rabbit hole. So that was around 94, 95 for me. So August had been out for a little while. And and yeah, I've I've just never looked back. Their music has just always it's really just always spoken to me on a level that really no other band particularly has. And, and it's just everything that the band has done is I I love how just unique every, every piece of music they put out is every record where, you know, for me, recovering the satellites was like my high school album. This desert life was my college album. Hard candy was another era of my life. And so, yeah, I've, that's the long version. Sorry, I know it should have been the short version, but no, nineties for me, and uh, and I've been a fan ever since. That's exactly the kind of answer we're looking for. Uh, that's great, uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing your take uh, on the album uh, and how the crows have informed your journey in life. Uh, so, the last uh, guest today, 
music journalist, Will Hodge. Will, thank you so much for, for joining. Awesome. Thanks so much. I'm uh, super stoked to have this conversation across a wire is uh, not only probably probably my favorite Counting Crows album, but uh, I think it's uh, not just one of the best albums, live albums of the 90s, but probably one of the best and most innovative live albums overall, which, you know, yeah, we'll get into it. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited to have this chat. And Will, uh, what about you? How did you first become a Crows fan and, and what keeps you coming back? So August came out when I had just started like eighth grade. And and while I was mostly listening to like alternative and hip hop and punk music, there was this like subset of more like literary sort of acoustic heavy alt rock bands uh, that I really liked, like Indigo Girls, 10,000 Maniacs, even like uh, Crash Test Dummies, where bands that I really liked their music and their lyrics were really poetic and nuanced and had a lot of emotional substance. And so August, as soon as I heard it, uh, it definitely fell into that um, camp for me, except that they could do all that and they could also really rock, you know, with songs like Rain King and Murder of One later with Angels of the Silences, which is probably my own personal favorite of their catalog. Um, yeah, I just I really loved it. And so I hope it doesn't get me uh, kicked off the podcast too early, but I am one of the folks who absolutely loved August. Recovering the Satellites was a huge record for me uh, when it came out. Whenever Across a Wire came out, I really thought it was going to cement Counting Crows as this creatively unparalleled live band uh, in the alt-rock scene. But then, unfortunately, like when Hanging Around came out in like 99, I had sort of like a personal <laughs> disconnection with the band that I haven't really been able to kind of kick back into. So... I'm uh, one of the fans. I don't know if there's a special name for it within the community, but I'm like deeply soul level entrenched with those first three releases, August, Satellite, and Across a Wire. But I haven't really been able to get super deep into anything else that they've released since then. That, and that's I all right. still spend those three records like crazy, though. That's the thing is it those records don't stay in the 90s for me. They're still very much uh, a present part of being very enjoyable to me so that's that's fine i'm sure we'll convince you otherwise as you keep listening <laughs> right? to the podcast. exactly and even, even if those are your first three albums maybe we'll give you to t uh, get you a chance to give the other give the other ones an additional spin um but yeah. i'm glad to hear that i actually i should mention a person's name maybe next time but i actually had someone uh, write the podcast recently I don't think she mentioned any particular albums, but she said that the podcast has motivated her to give all of her Crows albums a, a try again, and, and she's gotten back into them and next time wants to see them in concert. Mm. So that was great to hear. Yeah. Nice. I do think it is something that probably exists more for whatever reason, the Crows there's, I, I, when I think of a conversation like that, I think we all think of, of Weezer, right? Because mm. you know, the, their blue album Pinkerton people. And then there's people who respect the whole Weezer catalog. Right. I have a five-year-old who likes Weezer, so I've listened more to recent Weezer records than I think most have. But yeah, I think the Crows do have, I mean, there is something where those two records, those first two records, still are, you know, kind of the fundamental ones, right? If people mm -hmm. are defining Counting Crows, particularly, I think, outside of the, like, kind of hardcore fan community, I think a lot of times you're going to get people leaning back still on those two records. Like, those are the classics. Those are the platinum sellers. I don't think that's even the, even the band leans on those, you know, 
those, those yeah. live the band leans uh, you know, very heavily on august and and really that second album kind of right behind that i would say so um and you you don't have to talk about it too much but i will say that we have to give you if somebody's listening they could say well you know this guy's a mild fan but i will also want to say that will had the opportunity i think it was recently too that for your writing and music journalism you had a chance recently to interview adam and uh t-bone burnett the the producer yeah. of the first album yeah last year uh to celebrate the 30th anniversary of august uh one of the outlets i write for is no depression they're a uh like a roots music journal and so yeah i interviewed both adam and t-bone which i think is the first time that they've ever been interviewed together in the same piece but along with being a 30th retrospective of the album, I also really kind of threaded my own theory through it. And, and one of the reasons why, like I said, those three albums are kind of more meaningful to me than the rest is that to me in the 90s, the Counting Crows were very much like an alternative music band that pulled in Roots music influences. And then I think they sort of shifted a little bit later to being a little bit more of, you know, kind of where they are now, like more rock revivalist, classic rock, like that, that kind of sort of stuff. And so I was using the opportunity to talk to both Adam and T-Bone to kind of get their opinions on that as well. And I, I will say, I think that Adam sort of agrees with me, you know, sometimes people forget like they were label mates with, you know, Nirvana and Hole, <laughs> like they were on the exact same label, but but yeah, so anyways, the if anybody wants to check that piece out, it's in the Winter Print Journal of No Depression uh, that just came out uh, a couple months ago. And yeah, it was it was really an incredible experience to talk with both of them, not only about August, but Counting Crows as an alternative rock band, because I think a lot of retrospective writing that happens about them sort of happens through this filter of what they did with all their later albums. Um and I think they kind of operated in a, in a little bit of a different space in the 90s. And, and just out of curiosity, before we move uh, into Across the across the Wire, how when you interview Adam for a piece like that, how long do you get to talk to him for? I think we talked for, it was about an hour and a half. Oh, wow. And some of that was, like the majority of it was on the record stuff that's very specifically for the interview. And then some of that towards the end uh, is like, Specifically with Across the Wire, I have been, if any if anybody follows me on Twitter, I, I feel like at least once every two or three months, I'm like, hey, can we please get this on vinyl? I know they just did, <laughs> like somebody in the Netherlands just did a, a bootleg of it recently, but everything I've heard about that version is kind of crappy. It seems like it's just like a <clears throat> CD repress, but yeah, so, so like 20 minutes of that conversation was Adam kind of telling me some of the interesting stuff that's going on um with them now uh now that they found out that oh hey universal didn't lose all of their masters in the fire like they thought they did so i don't think i'm speaking out of school but i think we can you know count on there being some uh really incredible reissues coming out because i think it's an absolute shame that this absolutely brilliant and beautiful live album uh has never had a vinyl pressing it, or at least it's in, probably uh, probably not a official. coincidence oh sorry will <laughs> no I was, I was saying at least a a proper official because some people are like oh i've seen bootlegs but yeah they're just cd represses so it's probably not a coincidence that uh what you're suggesting which would make me super happy 
it, that the uh, Adam was just posting on on Instagram this week as we rec- as we're recording this that uh, he was sitting down for interviews with the HBO documentary that I think mm. Bill Simmons and the Ringer are executive producing. So mm. maybe we'll get some nice big promotional push kind of all <laughs> all tied to something that we all really want to hear. And I got to ask you real quick, Will. Uh, so I, for I'm sure this audience probably doesn't know me and that's totally fine. But by day, I'm an enthusiast journalist at IGN. So I deal a ton with video game developers. So mm. I, I'm curious where with, with you, Will, when you're sitting down with Adam and you've just told us how August and recovering satellites mean the world to you, do you do you ask him to sign a copy of the album at the end or, or out of like professionalism? Do you do you do you uh, resist that temptation? Yeah, well, I, I tell you, me individually, uh, I'm I'm I totally understand autographs. I'm not I'm not a super big autograph person, but I will say from a from a fan perspective, anytime I'm interviewing, uh, I've noticed that there's a lot of artists that kind of operate an interview differently whenever they feel like if they're dealing with a fan or not. So always kind of up top, like let them kind of know how I'm coming in. But then I really do try to let them intuit the level of fandom by the quality and type of questions that I'm asking them. And I think especially with an artist like Adam, I think that sort of helps them not be so guarded and, and, you know, you know, kind of help with their, with their questions. But yeah, I definitely, once we got through again, once we got through the like main chunk of the interview, the questions that I really needed him to answer, um, I definitely geeked out a little bit towards the end about some of, some of my favorite parts of, of, uh, their catalog. And he was, um, he was very, not only gracious with his time, but gracious with like, Oh, thanks. You know, cause he, he knows it's my first time talking to him, but for him, he's like, okay, get get in line to be the 1 million person that told me that August meant something to them. You know? So uh, yeah, he was very gracious with all that. That's oh, great. Cool. No, that, that, that's fantastic. Thanks everyone for, for, uh, yeah, for that, for that, for that intro. Uh, so we'll go into official, I know, I know people call it across a wire. Some people call it across the wire or something, but yes, across a wire live in New York city is the official title. And as everyone listening to the podcast knows, the first disc recorded on uh, VH1 Storytellers, that was part of that. Well, Jeff will talk a little bit about that. And the second disc from the MTV show, Live from the 10 Spot. And I somewhat remember, this just personally, I somewhat remember, because again, this was, I guess there was programmable VHS machines, but I didn't have mine programming. And I kind of remember coming late home from work when I was living in New York City and catching the last like 20 minutes. I think I had to work till 10 that night or something ridiculous. And I think I caught the last 20 minutes of live from the 10th spot. The, the album went gold after a few months. But interestingly enough, it was that we were talking about Platinum Records. It's the last Crows album to go platinum. And what I mean by that, uh, of course, uh, uh, I think Desert Life went platinum after that, but the certification for Desert Life was before. So Across the Wire uh, was a certified platinum in 2005. Um, so uh, without any further ado, Jeff, what do you want to say about the uh, creation of this uh, fascinating live disc, double disc? <laughs> All right. Thank you. Well, there's there's not a ton of uh, backstory to add here. I mean, people who know the album kind of know what it's about. But, you know, one thing is this came out in July of 1998. 
And we don't have this desert life until November of 1999. So there's almost a year and a half that passes between the release of this and the next studio album. In some ways, it's really is the end of an era. And we have the, the, the first show or the first disc, which was recorded in August 1997 at Chelsea Studios in New York City. That is then used for the VH1 Storytellers uh, show. They're on tour with the Wallflowers at that time, by the way. So this is in the midst of that tour with the Wallflowers, which was a big tour. That This is in the middle of that tour. They stopped and went and did this show and then went back to the Wallflowers tour. So then we have a few months later in November, early November uh, 1997, the show at the Hammerstein Ballroom used for the MTV. That's the electric show. At the end of that disc, and I know we probably all did a listen to it in the last week or so, but at the end of that disc, of course, Adam's like, this is the end of the tour, and this is a great place to end the tour, and thanks a lot. But actually, three weeks later, they're back in Europe doing a month of dates. And in fact, you guys were talking about that Amsterdam 10 two-meter session show on your last uh, podcast, and that that show was done at the, after the Hammerstein Ballroom. Uh, end of the tour show. So that was like the end of the tour of the US, but then they they did end up going back to Europe and doing another round of dates. And so it's an interesting time period because they had been on the road so long for this desert life. I'm sorry, for recovering the satellites. And here we are, the Hammerstein show is really kind of at the end of that tour. And you have a band that's very, you know, tight from all the playing, but also pretty tired from you know, being on the road and and hammering it out for so long. As you said, the album quickly went gold. This is a double uh, album. So that means 250,000 copies rather than 500,000. It's counted as sales of two. And then um, 500,000 copies sold, you know, uh, certified in 2005. So this is different in terms of sales than their first two albums. Not every fan who bought the first two albums went out and snapped this up. A lot of them passed on this. And also the critical reviews were pretty lukewarm. Rolling Stone in particular really um, hit it hard and gave it a very lukewarm review and said that the band, you know, there was this sort of sense that how dare you have the audacity to release an album, uh, uh, a live album after having only two studio releases. You're supposed to, you know, the rule is that you have to wait till you know, the fourth disc or whatever. I'm not sure what the rule was in 1997 <laughs> But, but they did get um, some critical knocks. And I think in some ways, this was one of the first times where this band that was so praised from their first album and largely on their second started to really have some serious critical backlash, you know, sort of for this reason. And one of the, one of the things that went along with that, this was in Rolling Stone's critique, for example, was that they had associated so heavily with VH1 and MTV as part of this uh, collection. Now, of course, we're in the 90s where MTV unplugged and, and that whole era of associating with MTV was, you know, had some status to it as well, but also they were kind of knocked for that association and even knocked critically uh, for that association. So um, we also have, it's, it's a live album. It's a live album from um, the second album's tour, which is an interesting time period for any band. And then we also have an unplugged album. So we can think about, you know, we can talk about live albums and that we love and compare to that or unplugged albums and compare to that. I'm, I'm always like, what is the 
purpose of a live album? What is the intent of a live album? What is the what was their strategy? Why did they release this? What did they want us to take away from this? And and I think very clearly they're releasing two different shows. They're releasing an electric and an acoustic show. So clearly there is some thought here. This isn't just we're going to put something together. And clearly, probably the record company said we'd rather have a single disc, but they wanted to do it this way. And then the last thing, I'm just going to throw this out. This is almost a non sequitur. But I was thinking as I'm listening to this, like, can because I'm a I'm such a studio guy. I love studio releases. And so to me, that live album better be like, you know, the most incredible thing I've ever heard. Or it's just a companion piece to the studio piece, which I will always prefer. So and not to say that I would always that's always the case. And so I was thinking, can I think of songs where the live version actually tops the studio version? And so I'm going to throw that out there, make, kind of put it in the Rolodex. Cheap Trick, I Want You to Want Me uh, is the one that instantly comes to mind because that was the hit. That's the one everybody knows is the live from Budokan version. And the studio version is, is not, I, I don't even think it was a hit. So that that's all I got. <laughs> It's not no, a it's like, really. It's it's song. Just every, no, just all of them. Anyway, sorry. No, it's funny you said that about the because it, it it's almost like what we said about the American Girls and the Diet Coke thing that that this like '90s and actually Adams talked about it in other podcasts like you're not allowed to quote unquote sell out in the '90s, right? That was part right. of the thing. So maybe right. being affiliated with having because it's also on the album cover or in the back, right? It, it even lists VH1 and MTV has their logo. Right. Yeah, do you has there ever been like? Of course, there's been. I like. I don't know of any. And again, I'm not as much of a music uh, buff as as most of you. Where like, where one disc was acoustic and one disc, you know, electric, and then also mm-hmm. that the acoustic is so, you know, that that of course we'll talk about this. That a lot of the songs changed. I, that's where I think that this is such mm-hmm. a unique album. I, I yeah, don't mm-hmm. I think that second mm-hmm. thing is a particularly kind of an interest. So the the. Uh, the Grateful Dead have a, a live album called Re- well, they have two live albums that are essentially acu- but the s- halves of a- a- acoustic and electric performances. So there's definitely like precedent of doing sort of the acoustic and electric thing. I don't think you have a lot. Of, I mean, there are the same songs on mm-hmm. a, c- a couple of these discs. I think is a pretty yeah, rare thing for- in terms of mm-hmm. saying, look, like we're going to put this like two versions of this song out. Because we, again, because I do think, to Jeff's point, I think there's a point here, right? Which is that these are interesting and different. Every time you hear us, it's going to be a little bit different. And you shouldn't expect the record to sound like the live show and see how it, all the different things we can do. It's kind of a show-off thing in a certain way, right? To like, hey, like, look at what we can do with these songs. Mm-hmm. It is also interesting. I, I was just looking at setlist.fm. This is the most, 1997 is the year they played the most shows. Even yeah. over 94, even over other years. So they were really like, I think they're basically out from like January to December with like very few breaks. Like it's an insanely oh, yeah. small amount of breaks. It's 139 shows that are logged, which is a lot. Yeah. I think there are two points about the yeah, please, Will. acoustic versus electric thing that that I think are kind of salient points. Number one, uh, I, I think one of the closest companions that kind of happened around the same time is when you have i'm a i'm a big nirvana fan and when you have their mtv unplugged and just mm-hmm. uh like a year or two later you have from the muddy banks of the wish they're they're certainly not placed together like across a wire is 
but mm-hmm. that is one of the things where you have uh, sort of a similar time frame of a band putting out an acoustic and electric, but it, but it's sort of different because while those two pieces together show the breadth of what Nirvana could do as a band, you don't see them digging into their individual songs in different ways, which I think is one of the Counting Crows most uh, impressive pieces of their legacy is I feel like they know the like DNA level opportunities that they can take their songs into more than, you know, practically almost any, any band in the world. And so that's the thing is when you're like, yeah, there, there are absolutely some, you know, I, I think it's like four songs that are on each of those discs that do not sound anything like each other, which I think is a really impressive point. And then to be a little bit of a contrarian, I would say about that whole connecting with MTV and VH1, I've always thought that this album would have actually been more well-remembered and critically regarded if instead of it being the double thing, if they had actually done an MTV Unplugged session as opposed to a VH1 Storytellers, I think their version of MTV Unplugged with having sort of that cool cultural cachet, I think it would be talked about just like, you know, Clapton doing Layla on Unplugged or Nirvana's Unplugged or things like that. I think that if it would have had a little bit more of that sheen on it, I think that folks would have been able to see really truly how impressive it is. But I think that, you know, as I've heard, uh, I think it's like Rob Harvilla calls VH1 uh, MTV for moms or something like that. Um, you know, in his 60 songs from the nineties podcast. Uh, I, I think, I think that's a really, I think it's an interesting point because it's like that VH1 MTV acoustic electric, that dichotomy makes for a really cool narrative to contextualize this album. But I think it also hurt it in some ways. And it also with a slight tweak could have maybe even improved on it in some ways, at least in the cultural reception of it. And uh, it, Ryan, I was gonna. Oh no, I was just gonna. Does it say something to me though that I was a teenager who liked VH1? Is that like a weird? <laughs> yeah. just, no, yeah. I was mature. Maybe that's the answer. I was awesome music teenager. on it. <laughs> one, one of the things that jumped out at me throughout uh, reading reading Jeff's book, and you know how he, how he checks in on on the sort of critical reception to each album, including Across a Wire, and you guys are touching on it here. That just like again, I. I'm a critic by day. Yes, it's video games. It's a different medium. It's not music. But like in my entire 21 year career, we've not myself or whatever outlet I've worked for has ever reviewed a game based on the artist, uh, the, um, the, the developer rather, or the publisher you know, these or whatever, things. It's, yeah. it's something it just drove me insane about all the critical backlash as the as the crow's career went on as i'm reading through jeff's book about you know you just eric you mentioned the diet coke thing that that comes up in in uh jeff's book as well and it's like all these outside things that just you know it, it, like in my world we we review the game like what's the game like and what you know not, nothing else you know, i guess you know you can subjectively attach anything else you want to it and certainly reviews are subjective there's no such thing as an objective review an objective review would literally just be the the, the song list of the album but it's just wild to me that that this across a wire 
would get panned because, oh, because they're they they associated with VH1 and, and MTV. It's like it, it completely blows my mind as a critic in, you know, this other tangential area that that this was the thing. But this, it comes up over and over throughout the Counting Crows career. And it just infuriated mm-hmm. me every time I would read about it in <laughs> Jeff's book. Ryan, well, did you this, also- I do think oh, yeah, they please. prompt some of that, though, in the sense that they are. I don't know. There, there's a purity that Adam sort of, I think, used, used in some ways to, to market, especially in that early period, right? And and so there's that tension of, I think some people got overly like, well, you're you're doing VH1 and MTV. And it's like, yeah, I, they're the music channels. We play for the music. We're a, a large, popular band. Like, this isn't. It's not. It's not a, a purity thing to do, go do a MTV, you know, a, a set. Hmm. But sometimes I think there's that little bit of people like attacking because of of that sort of sense that they're supposed to hold themselves to some weird, like perfect <laughs> standard, which I don't think was ever really the intent. It was more just like, hey, we're just not going to do things that we find distasteful. Putting a concert on live television wasn't something that they found distasteful, you know. So, mm-hmm. right, right, yeah. right. I mean, I guess you know, vi- video games aren't music; they're not a one-to-one thing. But just again, as somebody that has reviewed a million products over the years, granted, again, they are video games, not albums. Mm-hmm. But it just, it just really stuck in my craw. Yeah. It just sat, just sat with me the wrong way. Of all these, like, what does it matter? Like, what review the music, review the the songs being presented to you, not the the sort of the venue or format through which did, that they were, they were, Ryan, I don't know. Did you have any other, uh, like Ryan, when you picked up the album for the first time or whatever, did you have any other, just before we get into the actual track listing, any general impressions of the uniqueness or the, the albums in general? So I, I, the, the timeline is fuzzy for me. Cause I, I did fall down the bootleg rabbit hole at some point after I'd gotten way into counting crows, my first bootleg that I'd found in some record store and, you know, they're, they're, sometimes they'd have bootlegs for like 35 bucks or something like way more money than the regular <laughs> album was hottest ticket in Boston, which I think was mm. from the 94 tour. But yeah. like, cause in fact, well, yeah. So I must've heard that before across a wire. Cause that had children in bloom on it. That had some stuff that would, you know, I would later hear the studio versions of on recovering the satellites. And so you know, that I, I sort of had had gotten a little bit accustomed to how Adam and Counting Crows would would handle live performances. And, uh, and I guess I was too naive then, because like I was saying, Counting Crows was the first band that really kind of that I got super into. And, and really, that was when I really got into music in general. And so I didn't really realize at the time that most other artists don't have alts for their big <laughs> songs. Right. They don't change up the lyrics every single night. And so it was kind of the norm to me at the time, but even still, I, I think at that point when across the wire came out, I, I don't think I'd heard any of this stuff acoustically at that point from, to the best of my knowledge. Cause uh, on, you know, Jeff was saying how these, these two shows from this release were on that 97 tour. And I just mentioned in my little intro that the 97 tour was my first counting crow show. And, I don't recall, I'd have to go back, I guess, and either check with one of your better better memories than mine or check an actual set list, but I don't think they were doing acoustic sets during that, that Counting Crows Wallflowers 97 tour. So if I'm remembering that correctly, yeah. then Across they the Wire actually, was... 
Yeah, I, I know one of the interesting things they did that 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 actually kind of impresses me about Adam's intentionality with this is that they they were if you look at a bunch of the set lists and listen to some things they were trialing these songs in this little mini acoustic set during those lead up to the shows because Adam was telling me that they had actually been approached to do some like unplugged type shows and, and things like that earlier. And he was really wanting to make sure that if they were going to do it, that not only did they have something that they had really was themselves and that they had crafted the way they wanted to and all that. But because of some of the band changes and stuff like that, he was really wanting the band to be at a specific place before they did anything with their, with their live show, as far as like capturing it or making a television show recording, anything like that. Um, And so that's one of the things that I think is really interesting about them putting out a live album as well is that, with August being their, you know, biggest record and, and the one that most people know, one of the things that he was talking about is like, you know, their most popular song on the radio, Mr. Jones, that had Jim, that was the drummer in the band at the time. Hmm. I don't think I'm telling tells out of school. He didn't like that song. And so he didn't record on the album. T-Bone had to call in another drummer specifically to record Mr. Jones. And that intro guitar that everybody kind of knows so well, that's actually T-Bone playing that guitar in the intro, not even Dave. So like Mr. Jones, the song that they, that most people know them by had a different version, even of the band that was at the time. And then when you have them recording this album, you have, you know, Ben Mize on drums now. So there's all these different sort of conglomerations from, from where they started to where they were at that point. And they were a really well, like fine tuned band in 97 that was different than the band that had put out those specific recordings on August. So I I think that there were not only a lot of valid, legit reasons for them to put out a live album, but also think, you know, the old saying, the proof is in the pudding. So many of those reviews were like, should they put out a live album instead of being like, oh man, they did it and here's the results, which I think, you know, again, I I think they really did an absolutely impressive live album, especially with them only having two studio albums under their belt. And and it's funny that it, it, um, what, what you've said about the, either the quote unquote audacity of them to do, I joke that Chris, it's only this. And the fact that they mentioned, as I've said before, that they mentioned counting crows in, um, in, in murder of one in their first album, right? They (laughs) self-reference themselves, which one was the biggest audacity, you know, had the biggest, but you know, the, 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 um, the liner notes and I was, and Will was talking to me earlier off the, off the record today Hmm. about reading the liners, um, written by Bill Flanagan, who I, who, who I've said to Jeff off topic. I think that he's the one who says, this is my favorite band counting crows. I'm pretty sure that's right. Yeah. But he kind of, well, they kind of head that off in the liner notes where he kind of goes, yeah, I know that this is not normal, but this is why. Because Cannon Crows are such a special band and they did it such a special way that it makes sense with them. So I, I did. So I guess they they kind of um, think about that a little bit. Uh, I just had one or two other random uh, notes. I had always wondered, um, but I realized a year ago who it was, but I had always wondered for years who the rant in in the inside cd when you open it up they have photos of the band and little newspaper clips and there's the one i think what is it upper 
upper corner of the right side or something. But there was the one kind of person that's not a band member. And I said, well, who's that? But it is, I'm almost positive, it, that's um, Irish tour manager, Tom Malali, right? Yeah, yeah. Is his name, right? In the one photo, because they're like, who's this red guy, with, red-haired guy with glasses? I don't remember him being in the band unless Matt Malley cut his hair and dyed it red or something <laughs> like that. Who, who is still with the band to this day. And, and actually, the live album, if you read uh, Adam's liner notes, he dedicated, and that's why I'm 99%, sure, 100% sure it's him. They, they said that the, that the album's dedicated to him. Uh, and again, still with them. And Adam's liner notes mainly talks about, in a funny way, who plays a lot of the instruments, which I think is actually pretty cool. Another piece of trivia, which we're almost done before we get into the, is the, is about the cover. Like, what is that? So, uh, you know, where they have the, the, the telephone wires and, and the Statue of Liberty, that is not just based on, it is a portion of a real photo called Statue of Liberty from Caven Point Road, Jersey City. And it was f- photographed in 1967. I try to look to see if you can still have that like view now and the answer is no i think there's a no park way. and buildings there <laughs> yeah. but the fascinating there's two Chipotle. fascinating things yeah no i think it's more industrial and plus there's a park but the two random things is one of them is that if you actually are interested in seeing that print it is available in the buffalo art museum in buffalo Ooh. new york you can go up there I gotta, and see no, it. I, my, my wife's family is from buffalo <laughs> i gotta next time i'm up in buffalo i gotta the buffalo art museum Yep, it's called the uh, the AKG Art Museum of Buffalo. Yeah, okay. And, and, but I got to do now next time I'm up there. Besides, <laughs> eat donuts I, <laughs> and get some buffalo wings or whatever. But what I found was so interesting is if you notice on the cover, there's a little sign of across the wire, and it says like on one of the poles. And I always thought it was computer generated, but no, it was actually there. I guess that it says like no dumping mm-hmm. on one of the telephone poles. Well, what's interesting is the way they crop the photo, you don't see that, of course, there's all this dump and mess on the ground in the actual <laughs> yeah. real photo. So they kept the no dumping sign, but then they removed the part. Maybe they just didn't want to have that in the album cover. But, you know, for the social commentary, that part was taken away. I'm not I'm not sure whose idea it was. To, I'm guessing it was Adam's idea uh, to have the photo uh, there. But I always thought that, yeah. that was kind of interesting. Chris, I'm really hoping we'll this. Sorry. Oh, I was going to say, once we get a, a proper vinyl pressing of this, I'm really hoping that they may actually go all out and use the bigger picture and blow it up since mm. you know vinyl is <laughs> right. a, a bigger medium anyways. Uh, I think that would be a nice little touch to be like, hey, I know some of y'all have been waiting for this for, you know, 20 years now. But uh, yeah, I think it, I think it would uh, look really cool on the vinyl <laughs> version to do the entire picture because, yeah, it's a really cool. I think it's. Like the uh, the library, uh, Yale. The library at Yale is the one that that houses all the negatives for that photographer, mm. and they they posted it out on their um, Twitter a couple months ago. Oh. And it was just like, yeah, all these academics were like, oh yeah, this is a beautiful picture, and you're just like, this is a killer album cover. Yeah. <laughs> so. And and two things that kind of always correct me. Well, one is that I asked Jeff, what does he say at the? What does Adam say at the end of the um, of the across the wire of? Uh, Oh, sorry. The yeah, the um, the acoustic set list, and we couldn't figure it out exactly. We th- say, we think it's something like oh, that's about it for tonight or something, right, Jeff? We try to listen to it a couple times. Something along those lines, yeah. Yeah, but uh, if anybody knows for sure, word for word, or some AI can figure it out, let us know. <laughs> but the, the one thing that always cracks me up when I listen to this, because 
I, I, I don't know. It was very 90s. And again, I don't think it really shows Adam personality. And maybe he was concentrating. But when they say like, here's my favorite band, Counting Crows. And then Adam kind of gives this email like, hey. <laughs> like almost kind of dis- it just makes me laugh every time. And uh, I just picture him with his hair covering his eyes. Hey, you know, here we go. <laughs> I'm Were curious, there, Jeff, I, are there I any ask, sense? Sorry, sorry. Oh, I wanted to ask the, the the potential experts in the room here. Were there songs cut out from the storyteller's performance that weren't that didn't make it to this to the actual recording that's that's in our lives? Yeah, my, now? my VHS that I recorded when they first aired it ends with a long December. And that's kind oh. of surprising to me that they didn't put that one uh, on mm-hmm. the actual album version. But um, I have I have heard that that there were other songs they recorded. And also I think there were s- some of the songs that didn't get intros on the broadcast. You can find those on YouTube as well, like snippets of the intros, yeah. the spoken word intros. Cause that that's really a shame that those weren't uh, included on the album either. Yeah. Uh, there are some stories. extended cuts of that that are around. And they also obviously across a wide, the, the second disc cuts, at least a few songs. It's hard to find the, for some reason I cannot find a full set list of that, um, of that show, but definitely there's a few things that are, are clipped for, uh, for time from that as well. Oh, the, the actual last thing. And then we were going to get into, we actually, uh, together and anonymously ranked our favorite, uh, songs from disc one. So that's, that's, that's where most fans kind of focus, uh, their attention. Cause it's so unique. Uh, disc one, we also are going to talk about live from the 10 spot. Uh, like we talk about a lot of the shows, but the, the other, I guess the last thing I want to say is that of course the, 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 the title of the album across the, across a wire is from sometimes I forget because like wire actually comes up a lot in a lot of counting crow songs, but that one's from Omaha. Mm-hmm. Start turning the wool across the wire. I guess it well, that's across the wire, but that's I didn't see across a wire anywhere, right? So that's the closest walking that across I, a wire in a circus. What's that? I walked across yeah. a wire in a circus, right? Yeah. And also the pick the the album kind of go back to that again, showing yeah. you know, telephone poles, old school talking about that being a wire. There's a Layers on layers. That's Adam. Did you, but Jeff, so this ask you what I was thinking about the Omaha lyric and how many times have I heard this song? I was trying to, I could not figure out. I know this is, should have been in the August review about that. Start turning the wool across the wire. I couldn't get what, what's the ref. Can anybody there? What's the reference there? I could never figure it out. I believe that's how you part of the separating process for when you pick the raw materials and then pull it out into Yeah, the material. I think that's part of the uh, that's what production I process. Yeah. Was thinking. Okay. Yeah. yeah. All right. There we go. All right. So here we go for uh, the VH1 storytellers, and uh, we had to have a clarification, but uh, it is true. We are including Chelsea, the hidden track, which I forget, which we still laugh about hidden tracks in today's digital. And I forget how long the gap is. I actually wrote it down somewhere, but I don't have it in front of me. That there's a a few minute gap between songs and and chelsea uh jeff was from the recovering the satellites recording sessions or no well i was gonna ask others if you have any idea because if you listen to the you know like there are versions where he's speaking at the at the outset of that where adam is and is this from the studio or i mean i don't Hmm. i don't have all the uh information but i i always assume that 
somehow this was part of the live set that they had done. Mm. But they just horns, sounds though. like a studio recording to my no, ears. Yeah, it's a, I always thought of it yeah. that way. Yeah, yeah I, I it's thought a it was studio an, recording. an add-on re- studio recording. Yeah. Uh, but it may so have we'll, been recorded after. It does sound a little different than the anything else on 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 satellites like the the tone of it just sounds different so it feels like something that might have been just recorded later or that's true mm-hmm. i also do like that it's it's not just so a lot of times with hidden tracks in the 90s right it's just sort of quiet the uh the gap is filled by sort of clicks and pops that kind of sound like your record oh the record like yeah. a piece of vinyl right. interestingly right because that it's impressed <laughs> on vinyl it sounds like your vinyl has run to the end and there's the kind of clicks and pops you would get telling you you've got to flip your record over oh that's true no good good, good point there they can no, go really I, meta and then and keep and keep that in for the for the vinyl pressing right yeah that would drive so. some vinyl nerds very like just drive them insane <laughs> what is this <laughs> all right so here we go with the uh, vh1 storytellers official this cannot be changed ever god blessed <laughs> us with the official rankings of the top 10 songs so here we go coming in last but not least number 10 is fan chris's general fan favorite uh maybe not for this version was mercury with Three, well, all of us having it in the last few, except for contrarian Jeff Harkness, always who who put it in his top five. <laughs> so let's start with Jeff and why you <laughs> think that this version of Mercury is one of your top five songs from this album. So yeah, I'm all, I'm always the the one who throws everyone's rankings up, and my rankings are always very weird. So first of all, I love the song itself. Uh, Mercury, it's 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 definitely high on my list. When we did the recovering the satellites uh, one, I, I think I had it ranked uh, pretty highly on that as well. So one, I just I really like the song. I think this is a faithful rendition of it. It's not radically; it doesn't radically sort of reinvent the song. Uh, it's more of a, a straight ahead faithful rendition. But also, I think it demonstrates something about the Counting Crows, which is that often what they're doing on these studio albums is playing the song live. And so this, this is, this is sort of like we, when you go back and listen to this compared to the studio version, it's like that studio version probably sounded a lot like what you're hearing here. You know, these are the actual musicians right here in the room making this sound. And so to me, it's a great song. And then hearing them reproduce that, it's like, this isn't a studio gimmickry. This isn't overdubs. These are, you know, a bunch of musicians sitting here making this sound together. And so to me, I just love the song and I um, I love the execution of it here. Anybody else have any thoughts they want to share on Mercury? Well, I'll add, I, I had it number seven. I, I love the song. I do feel like I think what brings it down for me is that it's not a rearrangement so much. Yes, I, I think exactly. to me, like the reason why we're ranking this disc and, and not ranking the other one is really, well, this is a different album. It's got a bunch of songs that we all know and love, but this is really a different record than anything that we've, we've talked about before anything that's come before. Whereas Mercury is pretty much an acoustic song on the record. It's an acoustic song here. It sounds great. Adam sounds incredible, but yeah, it, it sort of didn't sort of shoot up that list for me for that reason. And I'm, and I'm a, probably pretty high on that song. I was actually curious, Jeff, do you know, do, were, 
was there any implication that there were any overdubs on this record? Because Adam sounds incredible. Well, yeah, kind of he, all the way through vocally, he sounds amazing. Yeah. He talked about like overdubbing some harmonies on Long December, for example. So yeah, I mean, there's some overdubs, but a lot of the takes were done live. They comped some of the vocals. Oh no, um, I mean so, for Across a Wire. Oh, Across a Wire. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I can't imagine that they they overdubbed anything onto this unless they did. Yeah, I, I can't. I will say one of the reasons that I think, to your point, Chris, that his vocals on Mercury might even sound a little bit better than some of the others is that. Uh, I'm in, I'm in your camp, Chris. I ranked this one low. It was number eight on my list specifically because, uh, it's totally fine recording, but you know, it's very similar to the album version. If I give it some positives, I do think it's cool just to show a little bit of the, uh, just multi-instrumentation of the band. You know, you've got, uh, Dave playing dobro instead of normal guitar. You've got Charlie playing harmonica, which is cool, which means that Adam moved over to the piano. So I think you're hearing his vocal from his vocal mic and from the piano being mic'd. And I think that's one of the cooler things about uh, this version of Mercury, even though it is very similar to the album version, because it's Adam playing piano and not Charlie. He does a little bit more of that uh, sort of like tension discordant playing Mm. between some of the verses that, you know, Charlie is just like, a fleet fingered melodic genius. And, and I like it sometimes when Adam is like, these notes don't normally go together, but we're just going to throw this guy in here to, to put some emotional tension. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm in the same way. I, those are some of the positives about it, but I also was like, you know, the, yep. the way of trying to to work the rankings uh, it, it's very much, you can put on satellites and get almost the exact same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I, that's what, I had it right. at number 10 you guys covered a lot of it, but for me, I think it's Mercury would rank like, as I'm listening along to your, when you guys did the episode ranking, uh, recovering the satellites, Mercury would be near the bottom of my RTS rankings. And, and here, given that it really didn't change too much, it's yeah, it just found, found its way pretty easily to the, to the bottom of, of what is a great top 10 list where we should all, I think everybody knows where we yeah. love all these, but yeah, this was, has this was rank. at the bottom for me. Okay, great. And I'm similar reasoned, and it's similar reason why number nine, my number nine ranking, which or the number nine song, how I ranked it, which is actually one of my favorite songs on the album. So our number nine was Ghost Train, and uh, I was similar that it didn't change too much. I had it number seven. Uh, by the way, just like well, Mercury. That's actually one of my favorite m- versions of Mercury, even though I had number. 10 uh with ghost train i still one thing that impresses me about ghost train i still think it sounds a lot like the 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 way they i don't know the, it sounds like a train is coming throughout the, while the song is being played and i'm i think i was more impressed about this that showing up in this live live version uh than than the album version but so jeff this is one that i kind of agree with you a little bit because also contrarian jeff had this in his top five <laughs> so right. i'll go to jeff next <laughs> Uh, yeah, I had this at number five. I I thought this was cool because one, it was the most sort of electric sounding song on this uh, first disc, and I just liked the the kind of shift in direction and and the change. Yeah, you know Matt Malley, you got to give him credit. You know he he he's very um, key to to that song and and does yes. really great work on there. 
And um, I, I think in, in some ways is kind of carries things along in some cool ways. I, I just, I liked it. I thought it was a, a good version. And also one of the interesting things I think about this album is that you're really hearing the early, in some ways, the early um, kind of pre-Immerglock version of the band. And so they don't have the array of instruments. You're hearing a more stripped down version of the Counting Crows than we've heard in a long time. And so to hear a song like, you know, Ghost Train in a more stripped down version with a smaller band uh, with fewer instruments, I think it brings out in some ways the emotional impact of a song like that. And um, I, I thought it just in this set, so suddenly we had this band with the, you know, the electric instruments um, playing this song. I thought it really, in some ways, stood out from the other numbers. And, and so when I was listening again, it, it ranked maybe a little higher than I thought it would, but I liked it a lot. Good. Anybody else? Any comments at all on Ghost Train? I'll just say at the risk of uh, making my second comment that might get me kicked off of the podcast. <laughs> uh, Ghost Train has always been the only song on August that is even occasionally like a skippable song for me. It's always yeah. felt like a song that like doesn't exactly know what it wants to be. It feels like the chorus is kind of disjointed from the verses. I will say for this version to to what Jeff was saying, I definitely like that throughout the arc of the show, not only kind of starting with just, you know, the two of them, like the old coffee house days and kind of, you know, building the band in individually at this point, they, they were also kind of doing this arc within the guitar players. You've got, you know, Dave coming out playing acoustic by himself. Then when Dan comes out, they're both playing acoustic and then Dan shifts to electric while Dave is still playing acoustic. And this one, they're finally both playing electric guitar. So there is kind of like this nice, sort of expanse that happens within the two guitar players. But all that being said, yeah, I put it at nine on my list as well, because I think the band plays it excellent and Dan's electric and Charlie's organ are both like really tasty, but I feel like they're playing great parts in a bad song, uh, <laughs> you know, for me, or at least bad within the counting crows level of extreme quality. Mm -hmm. I had it at 10, mm -hmm. I had dead, dead last in that regard. It's interesting because right before this one, Adam says, we're playing some of these electric songs because we play them so differently from the record. And I was like, it's kind of like, have I listened to too many bootlegs? I really can't <laughs> hear the huge difference of Ghost Train from the record to, to mm -hmm. this. This sounds a lot like the record to me. Or again, maybe it's just my brain doesn't pick up on as much because... I've listened to God knows how many 1994, 1997 tapes over the years, <laughs> which actually I think part of the interesting thing for me was, you know, I, I've, I haven't listened to this in a long time. I've certainly listened to performances that are similar. And so it's interesting sometimes to go back to that in this sort of full context and what this like whole record is like. That was kind of an interesting, it'd been, it'd been a bit, I realized since I just sort of dropped this on. Um, but yeah, a good song, but yeah, number 10 here for me. I had this at seven and I wrote in my notes and I fully admit this, it, it, I'm, you know, looking at this through the 2024 lens now rather than the 1998 lens. And part of that is this kind of gets a rarity bump from me because we don't hear this song anymore. They never play it. And so I, I did enjoy hearing it as I kind of revisited this. And, and I've also, I've learned about myself with, I guess, pretty much all music. I really like songs that, that feel like they build momentum as they go. And this is one of those songs. So I, 
I, I, I gave it a little bit of a nudge up to seven, but uh, yeah, I certainly can't disagree with any, anything you guys said about this one. Yeah, Will, you also, you really are bringing home a point that I mentioned, I guess, on episode two of Sullivan Street, which is Ghost Train might become a litmus test to whether I invite people on the podcast or not. So I did not ask you ahead of time because it came to the, the Ghost Train versus Time and Time Again battle that Chris and I always go through. But well, you're right. It's not a rule yet. I, I would have definitely, the bouncer would have uh, kept me from coming in. That's for sure. But, but you're right, Ryan. I actually had the same feeling that like when they brought back time, I said this earlier, but when, when they brought back Time and Time Again this year, I was actually thinking that this is really special but i'd like to hear ghost train uh okay moving to number eight which okay two of us which would be uh ryan and myself had this uh, actually most of us had it a little low except except for our friend jeff harkness right had it quite high just and and this would be i think there's one or two we might agree on but and this would be one of kind of grows classic songs, which is round here, but number eight on the storytellers, which kicks off the storytellers. Right. And I'll just say very quickly for me, uh, I've kind of said before my thoughts around here again, I didn't, I just think it wasn't as good or special as the top seven. That's really it. Although I did get a little nostalgic hearing him say in the beginning, Hey, this is just Dave and I, and that kind of brought me back to where I heard that song originated, mm-hmm. right? Them playing at a bar, just the two, maybe, right? It might've started with Himalayans, but when Counting Crows started that, that it was just Dave and him, you know, playing at the bar. So I thought that was kind of mm-hmm. cool. Uh, so Ryan, let's, let's, let's go to you. I'll, I'll get to give Jeff a quick break. He can think about why he ranked <laughs> no, it so I mean, high. So. I mean, th- this can never not be a great song. We all certainly agree <laughs> on that. But for me, it's just that, Aside from, I totally agree, the novelty of like, oh, yeah, it's like the nod to the beginnings of, of Counting Crows as a band. But there are 50 way better versions of this song that we've all heard. And so I, I, it's probably the only time that I'd ever have round here at near the bottom of any of any ranking of any, you know, list of Counting Crows songs. But, yeah, I had this at number nine. Yeah. There's a better uh, one on this yeah. record. <laughs> right yeah. that's true you know <laughs> yeah well, well i'll go to you for this one I was, I was just gonna say my my thoughts on this one are uh I, i'm kind of the same way part of me uh i like that this is now even at that point in the fandom when it was still you know somewhat difficult to to really get your hands on a lot of bootlegs and things like that this is really cool to have a third distinct version of this you had the original one from august then the Himalayans a version, you know, that technically that should be called the original version, but you had that one kind of making the rounds after mm-hmm. August came out. And then now you have this acoustic duo. However, that being said, I really only like this song for what it does in setting up the show and setting up the album. Cause I think it's a perfect mm. contextualization to create this narrative arc. And again, all the complaints about should a band with only two albums, should they have put out a live album? You can tell this is one of the touches where it's like, Hey, we're really going to do something interesting and tell a story with this live album that we're doing. But I have literally never gone. I've never just been like, man, I really want to hear the acoustic duo version of round here just by itself. It's only within the context of the full album that I'm like, this is the perfect way to start off that album. But only if I'm ready to sit down and listen to the album all the way through. <laughs> Chris, did you have anything to add before we get to Jeff? Uh, and who would I say? Oh, Jeff had it ranked number three. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, yeah. Number eight is again same reason. I, I just I think it sets up the album nicely, but I don't think this is a particularly memorable. It's not the version I'm I turn to when I want around here. Um, All right, Jeff. What about you? This is the best version of around here that's ever been <laughs> recorded. All right. Or performed. Um, okay, so you guys are all done trashing around here. Now. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. that. All right, good. Just wanted to make sure. Is there anything else negative you wanted to say about this rapid <laughs> here? The, the great counting no. president? No, I'm kidding. I, I think the reason that you guys don't like it is maybe one of the reasons that I like it the most, which is mm. that we are going back and seeing what this looked like back in those coffee shop days. And you don't get any other, um, you know, sort of look back like that. So here, here we have, I mean, Charlie Gillingham describes seeing these two guys playing this song in a club and what that was like for him to see that and how he saw like, nobody's getting this. I'm sitting here watching them playing around here and going, Oh my God. So like I'm taken to that moment. They talked about how they played this, you know, at that, um, uh, the big Hollywood showcase show where they got on the showcase and they were sort of nobodies and, and just, it was just the two guys. Uh, once again, they couldn't get the whole band on the show. So they just sent out Adam and Dave to do this song and again, killed it. So to me, it's like, this is such a special uh, song for them and to hear it in this sort of uh, incubated version, I just think is so special and cool. We don't get this anywhere else. Um, and as many great versions as there are out there and electric versions and all that, I think I think to me it's it's so cool. I do love I mean Will sort of hinted at this too how in some ways they're they're aligning themselves with the great tradition of of like the talking head stop making sense where we're going to start mm. start with the most stripped down version uh, that we possibly can in this case with just one guitar and a voice and then we're going to slowly add pieces to that. And I, you see them doing that when they bring in uh, Charlie, you know, in uh, for Have You Seen Me Lately. So you, you see sort of a nod to that tradition as well. So is that the penultimate version of Psycho Killer? Actually, it might be. Mm, but, yeah, might be. But, you know, there's some great electric versions of it, too. Does that diminish, you know, um, uh, you know David Byrne's opening of that concert and that album? I don't think so. I, I really like this moment for what it is and for the history and, and everything that, that did come after this song. It all came down to this type of performance of this song is what made everything happen. And so to me, it's very, very special for, I think for that exact reason, but there you go. That's the most on brand thing, Jeff, like the (laughs) Counting Crows historian going to bat for the history aspect (laughs) of a specific song. I love it. Yeah. Also, by the way, the the stop making sense discussion, I'm now, I can't not imagine Adam in just like a gigantic long t-shirt. He like just had no, but he's a, he wouldn't be a suit. Right. Like '90s Adam would be in a like a, a long sleeve T shirt that's down past the long shorts that he's wearing or something. It's just right. a full. It's like, if he would have walked out on Storytellers with a boombox, I would have ranked it higher. Hey, but, yeah. there you go. I love it. <laughs> that's great. Now, thank you, Jeff. I do appreciate and and uh, you know I I still at low, but I I I agree with your imp- uh, thoughts about the importance of of that. Uh, all right, so moving historical to- significance. Exactly. Uh, moving <laughs> to number seven, which was interesting because the, the, the ratings were kind of all over the place. I, I guess the most interesting is a selfish thing, which is that for those that listened to my Recovering the Satellites uh, review, it was one of my favorite songs, but I actually put it number nine out of 10 here, which is Counting Crow's Catapult. 
Uh, again, for me, slightly above Mercury. I, I just, I love the song, but this is just not my favorite version. I didn't have too much else to say. I still like it, but uh, I love the concert version and the and the and the album version. Uh, let's go to uh, a couple. Well, one person had it. Re- we'll start with Ryan, who had it the highest as number three. Yeah. I also adore the electric version of this. I mean, the way, I mean, this is the first thing you hear off of recovering the satellites and it's now granted. Okay. We'd heard angels of the silences at a sing as a single. So that wasn't sort of technically the first, first thing, but when the record opens, it's catapult and it's, I, I love that song. And, you know, I did before I, when you guys were kind enough to invite me, I did a first just off the top of my head. How do I remember these rankings? And then I went back and listened to the whole disc a couple times. And I initially that off, off the top of my head ranking, I had this lower, but after I listened through to it again, a couple times, I ended up having it at number three. And for me, I just think it's a stellar arrangement of the song. Now I still, I would probably, well, not probably, I would still prefer the electric version, but I, I just think acoustically, this song is still really powerful. And I just, yeah, I, I loved it. So I had this up uh, in my top three. Yeah, I'll go to Jeff then. But I, I, I do want to say that I, oh, gosh, I doesn't sound silly, but I almost like the way they played it. I, I guess it'd be in the arrangement. I, I can't put in my that. I almost thought it was one of the best played songs on this album, uh, just as far as their, I don't want to say musicianship, but yeah, the way they played it, I thought was almost the best. It just that's just where it ranked to me. Jeff, let's go to you. Well, I'm I'm always a vocal performance guy, so I, any, anytime a singer is just you know throwing down, I'm in. And to to me, this song is always going to be one of Adam's great vocal performances. And I think on on this particular album, he just it's amazing if you sit and just listen to his performance, like what he's doing vocally on this song, it is insanely great. And so for me. Uh, we sort of have made this point. We always make this point. You have 10 incredible songs here. So, you know, putting one at number 10 and one at number three, I mean, it's sort of silly, but this, this maybe should have ranked higher on my list. But the one thing that stood out to me is I just thought Adam's vocal performance on this version of catapult was like 10 out of 10. It was so good. Uh, Will. Yeah. I put this one at five. Actually, I, I really enjoy this version of it, especially not just that Dan is playing a banjo, but the way he plays it. Mm. It's not like a typical four or five string banjo that, you know, is kind of tuned properly. It's like the, uh, the, the six string guitar version of a banjo. So he's essentially playing a guitar, but it's, you know, it has the steel strings and the, and the drum of a banjo, but the way that he plays it really kind of adds this plunky, tension that that adam is singing on top of i think that adam really plays well against the instrumentation like his performance is informed by how dan is playing the banjo but the other thing that i really like about it is is uh the the old vhs booth that i have i remember the story for this one he mentioned you know how the death of kurt cobain sort of affected him and I kind of like that for a couple different reasons. And once again, why I wish the stories were a part of the album. Uh, not only is it a nice little time capsule of showing that even though this was recorded in 97, you know, broadcast in 97, put out as an album in 98, still kind of a reminder of really how much 
the death of Kurt Cobain, like how much that shadow was still incredibly felt in the alt rock scene, you know, even that many years later, but also kind of a reminder of, again, bringing up the point about them being label mates with Nirvana and, and the place that for that period that counting crows kind of inhabited in the alt rock scene. I think it was really cool because around this time, Adam was always getting pinned for quote unquote complaining about being a rock star. But I really think it was more about the human effect that being a rock star can have on you. I, I, I never really got ever from any interview of Adams or anything like that, that he was like, actually being a musician sucks, you know, or anything like that, which is what kind of people were always trying to peg him. And so I think this song and his story introing it uh, was a really nice way of kind of reframing what was actually happening at that point, as opposed to the critical narrative of what was happening at that point of like, Oh, here's this guy that, you know, has, you know, a multi-platinum record under his belt and is playing all these incredible shows and, you know, is somehow complaining about this incredible hand that he's been dealt. And, and I think this was one of the great examples of, of showing how misconstrued that, that public narrative actually was that it was really just about the effects of rock stardom, not complaining about being a rock star. Yeah. Mm. Thank you. Well said, uh, Chris, final thoughts on uh, catapult. Not a lot to add other than I'll, I should note that this was my number six, but my number three through six were very, very close. I think this is one of the songs. There's like a group of songs where the rearrangements are really, really special. There's a couple songs I have that I think are really a cut above, but this is one that I think is in that group of truly special and interesting versions of these songs relative to the originals. This is one of them. And thanks, Will. I appreciate you mentioning uh, not just about the stardom. Uh, we hinted at that and are recovering the satellites, but we didn't say it explicitly like that. Not even not even Jeff, our wordsmith, was able to say <laughs> about when we were talking about that comment about yeah, stardom. Uh, and also, I appreciate what you said about the banjo, because you're right, that, that that is great in that. Okay, number six, which I would argue was our most I don't want to say contentious. Yeah, anyway. No, yeah, I want to say it's somewhat contentious, which is interesting because I would argue that even to this day, the live version of this song is contentious, which would be Anna Begins, number six, where two of us had it quite low on the list. Two of us had it, well, no, one had really high and two had in the middle. And uh, I'll just, I'll start with me. I had it number five. I like this version. I, I am gone on record before saying that I love the studio version but I also have no problem of, I think this is, I guess, the birth, unless I'm listening to it wrong, I think this is kind of the birthplace of this kind of, at least that's the first I heard of this kind of electric rearrangement that he still that they still kind of play this way today. And I also like this version a lot. I like the song. I just thought there were four songs better on the album. So <laughs> let's go to Ryan, who had this fairly low. Yeah, number eight for me. Love the song. For me, it's what Jeff was saying about about just top-notch vocal performances. You can feel the emotion just pouring out of Adam on this version. <laughs> and that's that's what I love the most about it. Uh, and and really, my only other note was, I mean, it's, it's just a shame we don't hear this too much. This song, again, has kind of uh, collected a lot of dust in more recent years. But I think for me, it just came down to, I liked a lot of the 
unbelievably transformative acoustic rearrangements of of a lot of these other songs more is the, really the only reason I had it at number eight. I don't really have anything to complain about with it. I just liked a lot of other stuff more. But yeah, uh, serious emotion from Adam on this, which I love. And, and Jeff, I'm going to go to you and you can say which well, how you had it ranked, which was quite high. And, and I, I know that he had. No, but it's good because I, I, I said I think it's great. And I, I know he did. A, he, it's not the first electric song for on the on this right because really ghost train first yeah ghost train and but i it's before this one that he says oh we're playing some of these songs electric because we know and i don't know i just found it interesting that he did it before this one and as i said fans still kind of oh this should be an acoustic song but anyway i love it so jeff uh, talk about your high ranking uh, (laughs) this is my number number one uh uh on this album so first of all, this is my favorite County Crow song. It always has been, and it still is. So I'm always going to have a soft spot for this song because I think it's their, uh, to me, it's my favorite County Crow song and has been for their whole career. I, I still think it's their best song. I have, can't tell you how many hours I have spent listening to live versions of the last 20 <laughs> seconds of this song. The part yeah. that starts with she's talking in her sleep and goes to the end of the song. Particularly, how does he approach the every word is nonsense, but I understand. I probably have listened to every live version I, I could get my hands on of that particular part of this song, which I think is the best part of this song. So it's the best part of the best song of their, their whole career to me comes down to this moment in this song, really. And so how does he do it? And he does it in the studio one particular way and he does it well, but you know, in the live versions, he either goes for the high note or he does not And here he goes for the high note. And uh, there are versions where he does, where, you know, back when he had the, his full upper register, back when Adam could hit these high notes uh, like they were nothing. And here, I, I don't think this is the best uh, version of him hitting those high notes, but it's one of the early ones where you went, oh, my God, he just did something with this song, this incredible song. And he took it to a whole new level with his approach to the the way that he hit that line. And so here he hits the highlight, uh, the high note and it goes to the upper register on that line, which to me is the preferable way to, that he does it. You will almost you'd never hear him do it today. I don't think he can hit the note today. But back then, sometimes he would do it and sometimes he would do it, go for the low note. But where he goes for the high note like he does here, I'm always on board. And this is a very good version, maybe not the best, where he goes for those notes. So that little detailed explanation. But um, (laughs) I I, I was very uh, I've always loved this version. I I think this is an outstanding version of their best song. What is the best version of him going for that, Jeff? I'd have to track it down. I don't know. I, I, I'd have to track it down and find like, this is the penultimate. I don't know. <laughs> I just probably know that. Uh, Will, your thoughts on uh, this version of Anna Begins? Um, I ranked it pretty high as well. I put it uh, as number four on my list. I agree. This is a really beautiful version uh, of this song, especially in the instrumental performances. Um, I think uh, especially the drums and Dan's electric lines, because again, this is one of the ones towards the end of the set where they're both playing electric guitars. Matt has switched over to an electric bass from the stand-up bass. Ben's playing the full drum set instead of the uh, you know kind of little broken down just snare and kick set that he was playing. But specifically, the drums and Dan's electric lines—they are like um, 
they're sparse, but intense in the sense that they're not like overplaying, but every note and every hit feels like really deliberate and intentional and kind of, kind of gnarly. And also as far as, you know, Adam's vocal on this song, there are a couple like really, really awesome line deliveries where sometimes with, with these alts, like sometimes he'll go into a completely different song. Sometimes he'll change the lyrics. Sometimes he'll change, you know, complete lines or just one or two words, but sometimes he'll sing the exact same words on the album, but the way he sings them is different. And specifically the line deliveries on this song where he almost sarcastically kind of speaks that, uh, as long as this is love line. And mm. then he has that almost like desperate sounding way. He says, I don't get no sleep, man. I never sleep. You're like, God, like you could fit, even if you didn't know his story around this time, the way he says, I never sleep. And then he also has that when we're talking about the emotion, he has that sort of like subtle voice crack that happens when he sings her kindness bangs a gong. That's just like really, really nice. I mean, this is literally just a, uh, open a vein, let it all out. And I think that again, one of just the incredible legacies of this band is it's not just Adam that is complete emotional improv every night. The band is somehow able to, support and meet and encourage without anyone missing a step or overstepping each other or anything like that. I just, I have the, the antenna they have to, to support what he's doing vocally is just, is really, really one of their biggest legacies. I think. Right. right very well said. Thank you. Uh, Chris, final thoughts on Anna begins the, uh, uh, the VH one version. Oh, listening to to Jeff and Will talk about it, maybe I should have ranked it a little higher. I had it I had it lower again. There's just things I I know that Will and this Will. record. I just, no, Will, you know, can, yeah. Will was convincing me too while, while I was going on, and and I do think Jeff has a point. You could argue Anna Begins is is one of their best songs, if not the best. But all right, so that's it for episode one of our Across a Wire two episode deep dive review. Be sure to listen next time, just in a couple weeks, where we will talk about our top five favorite songs from storytellers and also get into disc two live from the 10 spot. All that and more next time on Sullivan Street. You know, a few uh, fans of our podcast have written us and uh, said that they are, in fact, podcasters themselves, and some of them have asked us which platform we use for our podcasting needs, and the answer is Zencaster. Uh, I actually had some broadcast experience myself. I've never really had podcasting experience, so Zencaster has been great in that regard. It's very easy. You can record your video. You can record the sound all in the same platform. It gives you some post-production processes, and uh, the price, quite frankly, is just fair. So it's a great all-in-one platform. So if you're interested, go to Zencaster.com slash pricing, and you can use our code Sullivan Street. That's Sullivan Street, one word spelled out, and you'll get 30% off your first month off any Zencaster paid plan. We want you to have the same easy experiences that we have had for our podcasting and content needs. It's time for you to share your story.